Thank you, Dan and team. Thanks, Ted. I thought I was going to have to work without an anchor here for a moment. Um, I love Bible study. And when I study through the Bible, every new book that I read, I think, this is great stuff. I love this. This is my favorite book. And then I go on to the next one, and I say, this is great. This is my favorite book. So when people ask me, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I tell them, well, it's whichever one I'm in at the time. Well, when Kurt asked me to, uh, actually, he asked the, any of the elders to fill in this week, and I volunteered, and I thought, well, we had just started going through Deuteronomy and Faith Builders uh, during the first hour, and I thought, this is the best book. I'm going to teach on Deuteronomy chapter 1, so you're going to get to go through Deuteronomy chapter 1 with me this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have so much to thank you for. And we do thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you would speak to each of our hearts this morning. No matter what I say here, Lord, let them hear you. Let me hear you. Let your word speak clearly and boldly to us. And change our lives with it, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy, the name comes from the Greek. It means second law, but only about a third of the book really is about law. So if you've ever been put off reading it because of that, don't be. This is Moses' final address. The nation is on the brink of going into the promised land. They had tried 38 years ago and balked at it. And they had to spend 38 years in the desert until everybody died. Now they're getting ready to go in again. Moses knows he's not going to be able to go in with them. So he is essentially telling them, guys, your parents blew it 38 years ago. Don't blow it. Here's what you need to know. It's quoted over 80 times in the New Testament. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he fought the devil. He fought temptation by quoting scripture, and he quoted from Deuteronomy. It is also, so this, this entry into the promised land um, is a type, and it's not the type that you might gather from uh, some of the old spirituals that, that make it look like the promised land is heaven. It's not. This Israel going into the promised land is a type or a picture of our Christian life, of going into the, entering into the promises that God has for us. And uh, it, it will be helpful as we go through this chapter and as I hope you will go through the rest of the book to bear that in mind as we go through. So it begins, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Wilderness in this case is a desert. Uh, not a desert with sands, Lawrence of Arabia kind of desert, but rocks. Uh, when Carol and I were there, she said, this is where they grow the rocks. In the Arabah, opposite Suf. And by the way, if you're, 
you're not already, please follow along in your own Bibles. We, uh, I guess, so we, we do have it on the screen, but don't trust me. Don't trust whoever put these slides together. Read along in your own Bible and make sure that I'm telling you the truth. Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hatzorot, and Dizahab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, these are place names that most of us are probably not familiar with. How many know what Horeb is? Just, I'm curious, show of hands, any, a couple timid hands. It's another name for Mount Sinai, right? This is where Moses received the law. The whole nation actually received the law. It wasn't quite like when Charlton Heston went up on the mountain, but, but that's the idea. God spoke the law audibly to two and a half, three million people. So Horeb is another name for Sinai. Mount Seir is the principal mountain in the, can we get the, the map up? Uh, is the principal mountain in the land that Edom occupies. Remember, Edom was another name for Esau. Um, thank you. So the, 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 the area of Edom is sometimes just called Seir or Mount Seir. And Kadesh Barnea is where the, the nation had first come to enter the land and rebelled against God's word and not entered. And we'll look at that as we get through this, um, through this chapter. So it's 11 days journey from Horeb. And you see the, the two possible locations of Horeb in the map. It's way south. 11 days by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So 11 days journey from Mount Sinai to enter into the land. Now, this is important because everybody Moses is talking to knows they've just spent the last 38 years wandering around the desert. In the 40th year, it's the 40th year since they came out of Egypt. On the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to him. Moses needs to do this because remember, all of the adults have died in these 38 years. So when the law was first given at Sinai or Horeb, all of the people Moses is talking to now either were children or they weren't born yet. So they need to hear this over again. So Moses spoke to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn. Take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the breadth of the land that God is giving to them. They never fully took possession of this, but this is what God had planned to give to them. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. 
Moses says, it's time. Go in and take it. At that time, now, not at the time that they entered, uh, but at that, in that general time, at that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is exactly what God had promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 15. God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. And the next verse says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. We read in Exodus 18 that Moses sat and judged disputes all day long. That's all he had time to do. And you can well imagine if you've got two and a half, three million people. Okay, this is larger than the city of Detroit. This is almost as large as metropolitan Detroit. And you've got one court. You know, it's bad enough right now. Our court system is overburdened. And if you have a court date, you have to wait sometimes months to get in. Imagine you've got this many people, one court, and Moses is the guy in the court hearing everybody's disputes. So his father-in-law comes to him and says, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. Here's what you do and suggest to him that he appoint lower courts. So verse 15, Moses says, so I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. So he sets up representative government. When we read through the story of the nation of Israel, we read through their travels in the wilderness. Oftentimes you'll hear the, Mo the, the people came to Moses and said, and you think, well, wait a minute. How could this happen? You got millions of people. They couldn't all come to Moses. Did one small group come and Moses responded to them and people on the other side of the camp had no idea what was going on? No, no, no. What happened was there were representatives, right? And people were represented at a, a very local level in groups of 10, right? And then that representation happened in larger groups and larger groups. And finally, you had a group of uh, maybe 12, one for each tribe, or maybe a, a few more than that, coming to Moses and saying, Moses, listen, this is what the people are saying. It's a model we use today. We live in a country with representative government. So Moses, charge you judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Wouldn't we all like to see that? You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. They are doing this in Moses' place, but Moses was in God's place. Right? God gave Moses the law. This is how matters are to be judged. 
Moses judged in God's place. Now he's delegating that authority to other judges. Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 that we are to submit ourselves to governing authorities because they are put there by God. They are governing in God's place. This is where that idea starts in the Bible. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And we see that happening when Zelophehad's daughters come to Moses, and, and well, they come to their, their local judge uh, and say, hey, you know, we're, we're all daughters. My, my father had no sons. Why should he lose his inheritance? And the judge says, yeah, that's a good one. I don't know. I'll, I'll go ask the next guy. And eventually it goes up to Moses. Moses goes and talks to God about it and gets the answer and brings it back to them. That's how this worked. Verse 18, and I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Right? Now, this is, he's, he's telling at Sinai, telling their parents, well, all the parents had died. Now he's going to tell the kids all over again. Verse 19 picks up with more history. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up. Take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This was not a group of warriors. This was a nation of slaves. So it was daunting. God's telling them, okay, go in and take this land from the people who are living there now. Don't be afraid. God is with you. Verse 22, then all of you came near to me, okay, not all of you, but the representatives, came near to me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. Numbers 13, where, where this actually happened, doesn't give us this detail that the people came to Moses. Numbers 13 said, says that God told Moses, go and send men in. And apparently what happened is the people came and said to Moses, uh, before we go, let's send scouts ahead of us. And Moses went and prayed and God said, go ahead, Moses, let them do it. And they did it. They formed a committee. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Eshcol is the Hebrew word for cluster. If you remember back from Numbers, they brought back a cluster of grapes and they were enormous. To this day, if you go to Israel and you go to a, a national park in the nation of Israel, the, the signs all have this icon uh, of two men with a, holding a, on their shoulders a pole and in between them is this enormous uh, man-sized cluster of grapes. That's referring back to this. Look at this. 
grapes the size of softballs. It's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. The Anakim were giants. We remember the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a leftover of the giants. Um, Og, king of Bashan, was a giant probably 10, 12 feet tall, right? And people were smaller than, these are big guys, these giants. Remember again, these are not warriors. This was a fearful thing. But God had told them to go ahead and do it. By not doing it, by the way, they made a committee 12 guys, you remember the story, 12 guys come back. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, say, the land's great. Let's go get them. God has given them to us. 10 of them say, oh, no, 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 no. These people are huge. Their cities are fortified. We can't do this. This is a mistake. The majority isn't always right. It's not always easy as here to tell uh, what God is telling us. In this case, they had the clear word of God through Moses. Right? Well, we have the clear word of God in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't always make everything clear to us. Are the details, individual decisions. They're rebelling clearly against the word of God. And the reason we're going to spend some time on this. The reason is they say, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Because the Lord hated us. Now think about what they're saying. Clearly God didn't hate them. What they're saying is, God doesn't want what's good for me. God does not have my best interests at heart. This is the heart of rebellion. When we sin, when you sin, when I sin. Separate from a, a, a crime of passion, right? There are some things that sometimes we sin because our brain shuts off, emotion takes over, and we just do something stupid. But when we sin intentionally, this is where we are. We're saying, God doesn't have my best interest at heart. How can I know that? What I'm saying when I think that is I'm saying I know better than God does what's good for me. This goes right back to the serpent in the garden. What did he say to Eve? Did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit? Oh, yeah, we can eat the fruit. We just can't eat or touch this one. That's not true. You won't surely die. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be smart like him. It's the oldest lie there is. God's holding out on you. There's something good. It'll be good for you, and God doesn't want you to have it. 
would be better for us if we went back to Egypt. No, God's got something better for you. No, 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 I, I know better than God. James tells us in chapter one, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights with whom there's no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift. That means that we're not gonna find a good gift outside of God's will. It may look good, but if it's outside of God's will, it is not going to be a good gift. Anything good we have to look for within God's will. If I know better what's good for me than God does, I just set myself up as God, right? I'm a better judge of what's good than God is. And where that leads is where we come to at the end of the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. We're, we're getting that way in our society, the society we live in now. Everybody has their own truth, their own morality. You can't tell me what's right. No, but I can tell you what God said. And what God said is right. So it's because God hated us that he wants us to go in there. Verse 29, Moses said, don't be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord, your God, who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord, your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord, your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Moses is saying, look, you don't think that God has your best interests at heart? Look what he's done for you. He took you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Each of us, he took us out of slavery to sin. Think back about the time before you were saved. Now, if you were saved as a little child, maybe that's difficult to do. I was 34 when I became a Christian. I remember the slavery. God took me out of it. Think about all the things he's done for you since then. Maybe not all the things you wish he had done. But we just celebrated Thanksgiving. We have a lot to be thankful for. Thankful to God for. Moses reminds them, God has done all these good things for you. Yet they did not believe. That's the bottom line. They didn't believe. God had demonstrated his love. Many of us in this room are parents. Right? Think about the situation with your children. Maybe some of your children have said this. You don't love me. If you loved me, you would let me go play in the street. Right? I, 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 that's a child's mindset. We understand it. But, but think about an older child who says, you don't love me because you don't give me what I want. How does that make you feel? One of the things that maybe goes through your mind is, what do you mean I don't love you? I raised you. I fed you. I clothed you. I did this. I did, right? I did all these things for you. What more could I do to show you my love? Well, 
what more could God do to show us his love? He's given us so many things and we don't even have to rehearse all the different things we should, but we don't have to look at all the different things he did for us. All we have to look at is the cross. He gave his son for us. What more could he do to show us that he loves us? They didn't believe. So how did God feel? The Lord heard your words and was angered. This is an anthropomorphism. Just go with it. The Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. Remember, I told you that Israel entering the promised land is a picture of us entering the Christian life, the promises that God has for us. This is a part of that. The old generation had to die. If we want to enter into God's promises, the old man has to die. The flesh has to die. That's why Paul would say, I'm crucified with Christ. We have to put that old stuff to death. We don't rehabilitate the old man. We have to put him to death. This is the picture. They all had to die. They weren't rehabilitated. They marched around the desert until they died. Verse 37, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Not even Moses gets a pass. And the, the lesson here is if Moses, the guy who was closest to God, he spoke to God face to face, like, like a man with his friend. And he gets judged. If Moses doesn't get a pass, don't anybody else think you're going to get a pass? Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn, and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, and again, he's talking about their parents. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, don't go up or fight for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you. Moses told him, hey, God said, don't do it. He's not with you. And you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. This is in the midst of their supposed repentance. They're rebelling. What does that tell you about their repentance? This wasn't repentance for sin. This was sorrow over the consequences. We need to understand true repentance. Repentance is not simply sorrow. That's an element of it. It's not being sorry about what happened. It's certainly not being sorry that I got caught, that there will be consequences. 
We see true repentance with David when he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba. Remember, he took another man's wife, got her pregnant, had her husband killed to cover it up. He was confronted by the prophet months later. And then he wrote Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. Oh, wait a minute. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation that he was leaving. But he understand, understood true repentance is I sinned against God, against a holy, just, loving God. We need to come there with all of our sin. They didn't. They were sorry about the consequence, about the punishment. So they went up presumptuously. Then verse 44, the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord didn't listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. So I, I really want to go on, but I can't. We're out of time. Things to remember here. Moses was held accountable. You will be judged. If Moses was judged, you will be judged. All of us will be judged. Right? None of us escapes it. If God just gave us a pass on our sin, and there are parts of the church that teach this, right? If God just gave us a pass on our sin, that would not make him a kind and loving and merciful God. That would make him a crooked judge. When we go to court, we expect the judge to be fair and to render a just decision. And part of that is punishing the sin. That's why we've got the cross. My sin had to be punished. And the only way for me to avoid paying for my sin personally was for Jesus to pay for it on the cross. That's why we have to have the cross. We all get judged. Well, I'm going to be judged. Okay, I better repent. Don't fake it. God's not impressed with fake repentance. And he sees right through it, just like he saw through theirs. When you are tempted to sin, ask yourself this question. Does God care about the best for me? Jeremiah 20 and 11 gets misapplied frequently in the church, but it's getting at this point. God has your best interests at heart. He cares about you. And if you doubt that, look at the cross. So before you go and look for something that God told you is out of bounds, ask yourself, does God care? I used to work with a guy who came to me one day. He was in a Bible study with me, and he came to me one day and said, Len, I decided I'm going to turn my back on God because I want to do some things that God doesn't want me to do. That's the picture right here. A year later, he came to me and he said, Len, I don't think God likes me because all these bad things have happened in my life. 
right? It, it always looks so stupid when somebody else does it. But don't we do it too? When you are tempted, ask yourself, does God really care? Does he know what's best for me? If you are in sin right now, you may be covering it up and nobody knows. Nobody in this room, not even the people closest to you. Ask yourself, is this thing that's so important to me, is it really good for me? Is it really possible that there's something out there that's good for me and God doesn't know that it's good for me? Look at your history with God. Look at what he's done through your life. Answer that question. And if you're in that sin, drop it today. Repent. God welcomes the repentant sinner. And so do we. I guess it's, it's not the musicians, but the baptism crew that needs to come forward next as I pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. Please, please plant it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Lord, I ask for your blessing on this body that we would be a body that glorifies you, that brings you honor and praise, not just amongst us here, but throughout all Midland. Lord, please reveal more of your goodness to us that we would fall more in love with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.